You are listening to a message recorded at Living Hope Church in Southwick, Massachusetts. We hope you find encouragement through God's Word today. Um, We've been talking about going deeper this year. And uh, how many know it's just easy to say, like, well, I'm going to go into deeper things but never get there. Um, It's easy to talk about our plans for the year but never actually accomplish those plans because we still kind of do things the same way that we've always done them. And we don't know how to go any deeper. And sometimes it takes someone to walk you through that and guide you through that so you know how to go about going into a, a deeper walk, a deeper relationship with the Lord. I believe that this year is the year that God wants you to go deeper with him, wants me to go deeper with him as well. Uh, Listen, I've been a Christian for over 30 years, but it doesn't mean that I've arrived, doesn't mean I know everything that I need to know. Uh, There can be times where I can be really passionate about the Lord, and there's times I can be like, "Eh, it's early, or I'm tired, or, you know, I'm sick and not feeling well. You understand, maybe I'm the only one that feels this way, but there are times where you're really passionate for God, and then there's times and seasons maybe where you're not so much. But I believe that God wants us to go deeper. It doesn't mean about the hype of just working yourself up to be a better Christian. It's about doing the work of going deeper and knowing God and walking in a way that's pleasing to him. I believe God wants us to go deeper in our devotion and love for him, deeper in our devotion to his church, deeper in discipleship and growth, and deeper in our understanding of who he is. Now, when it comes to depth, it's like, okay, uh, how do you measure depth? Now, if you're measuring the depth of something, there's a lot of great tools and instruments that you can use now. It used to be that you had to use like a tape measure or a measuring stick. Now they've got lasers that can do it, right? Like we've been having uh, some quotes and some estimates on painting the sanctuary. It's really cool. You know, the guy will come in, the contractor will come in with a little laser pointer, and he'll just point it at one wall, point it at the other wall, and he'll tell you exactly how long and how wide the sanctuary is. That's a really incredible thing that you can just do that with a laser pointer. Uh, There's different units and uh, different tools that are used to measure depth. Um, In the old days, in uh, ancient times, they used to have a lead line. Now, why do they call it a lead line? A lead line was something that was just a a long, long, long uh, strip of rope that had a lead weight on the bottom of it. And so sailors that would go out to sea, they would uh, be out in their boat, and they would throw the lead line into the water. And every six feet, there was either a a rag or there was a a strip of leather that was tied to the end of it that would determine the, the depth. And so they would throw that lead line into the water just to see how deep the water was if they were going to come in and, uh, you know, uh, moor their boat or to put their boat in port. They want to make sure they didn't run aground or anything, so they would throw the lead line out, the lead line, I, sh- I should say, and they'd find out how long it is, how deep it is, and then they'd pull it back. Now, some modern developments have changed since then. If you've ever gone fishing, I have not, okay? I'm just telling you right now, I'm not a fisherman. Some people enjoy that. I find I'm a fidgety type person, so I kind of get a little antsy if I'm out in the fishing boat and I'm just waiting to do something, waiting for the fish to bite. Uh, you know, we've got some people that are fishers, fishermen and fisherwomen, I guess you could say. Uh, in our congregation, they love to fish. They love the relaxing nature of it all. Me, not so much. I grew up in Worcester. What do you want from me? It's like, can't go fishing in the public pool. You don't want to go fishing in, like, the river or the reservoir. You never know what you'll pull up out of that. But they have a, a, a fathom meter. 
And it's a little instrument that you just put on your boat, and it sends out a little sound wave, and it tells you where the fish are. It tells you how deep the water is. And, you know, you see a little display on it. It tells you how deep things are. Sonar is, is the use of uh, uh, sound waves, and that's used um, by uh, ships when they're trying to detect submarines. This, this uh, type of technology was developed in World War II. And so if you want to tell where the submarines were, if you want to tell where their danger was nearby, they would send out this sound wave, and it would bounce off of the objects that were in the ocean, and it would come back, and it would tell you there's something down there that doesn't look right, something that's not quite proper. Uh, when it comes to the air, there's radar, and that would send out electromagnetic signals, and it would uh, tell you how far something was away, and if something was going to come back your way, that they would determine that. Uh, actually, in World War II, um, uh, the idea of radar wasn't even quite a technology yet. It was a secret technology that was used by the British to be able to detect German planes that were going to be attacking uh, England. And so no one had developed yet, a super top secret. And the Germans could not figure out how the uh, British would know that they were coming or that they would get so good at shooting down the planes. And so the uh, English government, the English Air Force released this narrative about how English pilots were better at seeing things than German pilots were. And they, what they said is, if, it's because they ate more carrots. <laughs> and the beta carotene in the carrots made their eyesight better. And oddly enough, that's a narrative that we still hear today, isn't it? Like, if you want better eyesight, you just eat carrots. I remember being a kid and you just snap off a carrot like, I can see better, you know, like I can feel it. I can feel it, I can see better. Maybe I've got x-ray vision, I don't know. But, like, it was the idea of this electromagnetic pulse that would go out. Anything that was distant would bounce back to them, and they'd be able to determine who's coming or how far away it was. I think it's interesting that the majority of these technologies use sound to determine depth and sound to determine how deep something goes. And I think the Word of God is like that as well, is that as the Word of God is preached, as the Word of God is heard, uh, as we read it, as we study it, it tests how deep we really are. It tests the depth of our understanding about God. It tests, tests the depths of who we are. Are we deep Christians? Are we people who have gone to great lengths to deepen our walk with the Lord? Or is it just surface? Now, the way you can tell it's just surface is because surface is cliche. Surface is we know all the right things to say. We've heard them said. And we repeat them back. We parrot them back as though they're, they're facts. And though they are scriptural truths, we don't know the truth behind it. We haven't gone deeper into that and allowed it to go just beyond something we say and something we use to be something that we've actually made a part of our life so that we become deeper in our devotion to Christ, deeper in our Christian values. I think if you want to see how deep a Christian's values are, you can measure it by how they treat other people. You want to see how deep a Christian's values are, you can determine it by seeing how they treat other people. Sometimes we're really good at knowledge, and we're really good at doctrine, and we're really good at a lot of other things, but we're not really good about the application of those teachings as it pertains to people. We, 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 we know things, but even as the Apostle Paul wrote, is that knowledge puffs up. Knowledge makes you pretty smart, makes you pretty proud. And sometimes people will like to do that. You're in a Bible study, and 
It's all about their conversation, what they want to bring to the table, and what they want to say, even if it's like way off topic. We're just trying to get the study back around because we're not there for them. We're there for the study of God's word. But it's always amazing how like when a person that's very knowledgeable can sometimes be so proud in the way that they carry themselves and the way they deal with other people. It's really a challenge to us that we would love people even though we know more than them. That there wouldn't be that intellectual or academic bias that we say, ah, you're so simple. Or you're just, you're so unknowledgeable. Or you're so, you're so basic, you know, when it comes to your understanding. If, you know, someday when you get to be as seasoned and as mature and as humble as I am, then someday you'll live out your Christian walk. And, and the truth is if we just acted in love towards one another, that makes so much more of an impact in someone's life than what we know. When you love someone, you can bring knowledge to the table and they can receive it because you're approaching it with concern for them. Like if I share something with you out of concern instead of an air of superiority, then it's a little different and it's a little easier to receive than thinking to yourself, okay, here's somebody that thinks, you know, people will come up to you and say, you know, you know what you should do? Everyone has a solution, whether it's on Facebook you know, whether it's on, uh, in conversation, whether it's a text conversation, you didn't ask for the advice, but they're giving out free advice because they feel like you need it. But what if you just loved them for who they were and showed concern for them? Then they would be willing to ask you and listen to you. You know, I'm 48 years old this year, and uh, I remember growing up and, and being the eldest in my family, the eldest of three, I always had concern for my brother and sister, but it always manifested in the way of like me telling them what to do. I know you don't do that as the oldest. That's not something you do. But for me, the best way I could show my concern for, for them is by telling them what they shouldn't be doing and what they're doing wrong, right? And as you can imagine, that went over as well as you could think it would go over. And it usually ended up in an argument and usually ended up with uh, us being mad at each other. And then for a while, we wouldn't speak to each other. And then something changed in the dynamic of the relationship with my, my siblings. And there's, believe me, there's still times we butt heads. My sister will tell you that, okay? Uh, there's still times we butt heads. But I started showing concern for them and just being like, how are things? I'm just thinking about you. Just worried about you, okay. And just being concerned for them and just loving on them and just showing compassion towards them. And oddly enough, they would ask me, well, what do you think I should do? And then there's my opportunity. There's my platform to say something because I'm speaking out of a place of mutual concern and care for them. Once that happens, then there's an opportunity to speak into someone's life. So I think when it comes to us, like, you know, we've got to look at the depth of our love for God and our depth of our Christian values as it pertains to other people. John 13, 34, and 35. We're going to look at that together. So you can turn there with me in the Word. And uh, in it, Jesus says, By this all people will know you're my disciples if you love one another. That phrase, one another, appears often in the New Testament. And we're going to kind of focus on those two words here. And it appears a total of 100 times in the New Testament. These aren't uh, suggestions these one another's are commands that are given to us and uh, things that we are supposed to do as Christians. 
Now, of these 100 one-anothers that appear in the New Testament, five of them are given by Jesus. 47 of them are given as instructions to followers of Jesus. And 60% of them are written by the Apostle Paul, who wrote three-quarters of the New Testament. And they all revolve around these two words, one another. Author Jeffrey Krantz of the Overview Bible Project writes that there are four themes in these commands. Out of the hundred or so uh, one another's in the New Testament, there are four themes. And they'll be the four uh, things I'll be talking about in the next few weeks. The first theme is this, is love. One-third of the commands that are mentioned, the one another's, have to do with love. The second is humility. 15% of the commands focus on setting aside pride and being humble. For example, it says, consider one another better than yourselves. Serve one another. Honor one another. So there's the idea of humility as being a command for one another. The third is unity. One-third of the commands the one another's have to do with believers being in unity. Live at peace with one another. Do not envy or backbite one another. Tolerate one another. Do not complain about one another. Listen, we're really great at, you know, when it comes to other one another's, but when it comes to the ones about dealing with each other, we're not so great. When it comes to be like, not backbiting or gossiping, when it comes to honoring each other, when it comes to serving each other and showing concern for each other, we're not always great about that. And the fourth, the rest have to do with accountability and encouragement. Accountability and encouragement. It says, confess your sins to one another. Speak the truth to one another. Pray for one another. Spur one another on to love and good works. So you see what, I mean, if you were looking at this, we can already see the problem, can't we? We can already see that some of these things we're just not doing. We're not, you know, we're not engaging in these things at all. And so many times we're just living out a Christian life that doesn't include this part of it. These four themes mentioned by Krantz, I believe, are four ways you can test the depth of your walk with Christ. These tests will determine if your walk with Jesus is just on the surface or if it goes deeper to who you are as a person. So let's look at one of the uh, one another statements that Jesus gave, and we're going to talk about love today, but I want you to look at this together. As we look at these uh, two verses in John chapter 13, uh, I want you to pull some things out of it with me. And the first thing is this, is that he says, a new command I give you to love one another. A divine directive, a command from the Lord. Jesus gives them a command that he wants them to follow. Part of this is because if it were up to them, they wouldn't do it. If Jesus didn't tell them, hey, you need to love one another, and think about the diverse group that, was, that made up Jesus' disciples, and you had people that absolutely were of different walks of life, didn't quite understand each other, some even had an outright contempt for one another. If you've been watching the Chosen series, you know that Peter wasn't particularly fond of Matthew, the tax collector. And probably Simon the Zealot was probably not particularly happy with the tax collector, Matthew. And just how different they are, different walks of life, different education levels. And, and so, you know, you could pretty much be a disciple and say, okay, well, I love Jesus, but I don't like that guy right there or that person right there. Maybe you're living that. I don't know. 
Maybe you're like, I love Jesus, but Christians I can't stand. Maybe that's why you're not here today. You're like, I love Jesus, but I just can't stand being around people. But can I just tell you that like, that's the challenge. Part of being a Christian is to be around people. We're not meant to live in a cave. We're on a mountaintop. We're meant to be around people for the purpose of mutual growth and encouragement, discipleship, and evangelism. If we're not doing those things, then we're not really fully walking in what Jesus intended for us to walk in. He gives a command to, that they're to follow because he knew that they wouldn't do it on their own. So I guess this is kind of like the difference between a mandatory meeting and an optional meeting. So if your workplace says at the end of the day at 4.30, you have an optional meeting before you go home. You're like, I'm not going to that meeting. But if they say it's a mandatory meeting and that everyone needs to be there, you're like, I guess I better go. Why? Because, uh, first of all, I'm concerned with what's going to happen if I don't. And two, it's obviously important to whoever is my boss or my manager or my leader. So I need to do those things. And sometimes it could have been done in an email. I get it. Sometimes that could have been like a five-minute meeting instead of someone who raised their hand and asked a question. And, and said, Well, you know what I'm talking about, right? The meeting goes far too long, longer than it should have. But Jesus does it because he knows that probably if it were left to his disciples, they might not do it. And honestly, if it's left to us, we probably won't do it. But if we know that he wants us to do it and he's commanded us to do it, then there's a motivation there that to please the Lord as something that they must do. This command is not just for the 12 he was speaking to at the time, but for all of us. Now, what is this commandment? Verse 34 says, that you love one another as I have loved you, that, that you may also love one another. Love one another as I have loved you. I want you to think about this. That's setting the bar pretty high. Okay. Like, I love you, but I don't know if I love you like that. I'm just being honest because there are times where I'm not always good at being loving like Jesus. I want you to think about how high that bar is set. This is not just like, I kind of like you, I tolerate you, I put up with you. But I want you to think about how much Jesus loved his disciples. Think about to what great lengths Jesus went to to show his love to his disciples. And this is, you know, John 13. And we don't, this is right before Jesus goes to the cross. He hadn't even shown them the full extent of his love yet. The full extent of his love is like, I'm willing to die for you. And he hasn't even shown them that yet. But he says, in the way that I've loved you, I want you to love one another like that. And that all the, the compassion that Jesus showed, the understanding, the things that he had taught them, the, ways, the way that he had loved them, he says, okay, I want that to be the standard you apply to every relationship that you're in, every person you come in contact with. And then think about the cross. There was an additional level of love that he had yet to show them, a love that had sacrifice associated with it, giving his life for theirs that they might be saved. Imagine trying to love people with that same degree of love. It's impossible. I mean, really think about it. Is it really possible for us to love in our own strength, in, in, in Pastor Dan Valeri's ability? Listen, I don't even like myself sometimes. So I find out, if, like, if you're insecure, you have trouble with yourself, and you have trouble with liking other people because, you know, you have issues like that. 
But like, you know, I know that Jesus loves me, but like, can I love someone like that? And when you think about it that way, you're just like, there's just no way in myself, in my own ability that I can do that. It takes God working in us to do this. Why is it impossible for us to, to love people in our own strength? Because, well, honestly, people irritate us. They just do. Whether it's, Somebody might have irritated you before you walked in today. Like, here, I mean it. Like, you know, someone might have irritated you, like, as you went through the Dunkin' Donuts line. As you, as you drove on the way here, you, someone might have irritated you. It's like, okay, sometimes people just irritate you. And it's difficult to love them. Even people that are, like, in your circle, your ride-or-die friends, like the people that you go places with, there's even people in there you're just like, dude, enough. Okay, just stop, okay? Just, it's not funny. Don't do it anymore. But they're your friend, and you include them with you, and, but they're irritating. Sometimes they're rough and rude. Sometimes they just, like, they just have no filter. They say things that they probably shouldn't say, or they say them in a way that maybe could have been phrased better. Let's put it that way. Or maybe because they're sinful and make bad decisions. Sometimes you have people that you're come in contact with and just like, that person's just bad. You know, they just do bad things. Or maybe there's people that you know that are just simply toxic, like as nice as you try and be towards them, as, as loving and caring as you try and be, they'll always find a way to take the knife and twist it on you and make it into something that it wasn't. So it's really difficult for us to love people like that. It's really easy to love people we like. It just is. It's not even a challenge. So how do we love? And let me just say that it is possible to be loving and still guard your heart. It is. You can love people and still keep yourself safe from the negativity, the toxicity, and the problems. So one of the ways we test our depth of our uh, love in this area is by asking questions. Questions like, why do we love? What do we love and why? Uh, Jesus in Matthew 5, verses 43 through 48. If you take a look at that with me, if you would. You're so gracious and to be able to listen and follow along today. And Jesus kind of gets to the heart of the matter, you know. Listen, it, it's easy to love people we like. Can we agree with that? Like, there's even people like, sometimes you're not even like, like super duper close with them, but they're funny, and they're just great to be around. Like, I love that guy. Or I love that girl. She's just so fun to be around. You know nothing about them. But you love them because just like they're just, they're exciting to be with, you know? And so Jesus kind of calls into question, like, okay, well, why do you love? What do you love? And who do you love? In verse 43, he says, You have heard it said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. I say to you, love your enemies and bless those who curse you and do good to those who hate you. And pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven, for he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you only love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your brethren only, what are you doing more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do so? By the way, that you're like, okay, is he talking about tax collectors? In other uh, gospels, it says sinners. So sometimes that word is used synonymously. Tax collectors were, tend to be hated by the Jewish people because they worked for the Roman government. But he's saying, are you doing anything different than sinners do? He says, therefore, 
you shall be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. So what Jesus is saying is, if you only love those who love you, that's really not that impressive. It really isn't, because even believers do that. Uh, even non-believers do that. We love people we like, and we don't love people we don't like. The reward of loving the people who love you is that it's reciprocal. You love somebody who loves you. You love your boyfriend. You love your girlfriend. They love you back, ideally. You love your wife. You love your husband. They love you back, ideally. You have friends that you've been close with, friends that you've been together with for 20-plus years. They know what you're thinking. They finish your sentence, and you're like, I love that, because it's reciprocal. You get something out of it. So he's saying, you know, there's nothing really stunning or impressive about the fact that you give love because you know you're going to get back. But he says if you love without expecting anything in return, and sometimes in, in many cases receiving like the opposite of love back, he says that's really what's impressive. Jesus encourages them to love in a way that expects nothing in return. Love them because the Lord will reward you, not in this life, but in the life to come. He'll reward you for loving people that are unlovely. He says, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Love those who persecute you. It's like, God, Jesus, I don't like this. See, how I'm talking about going deeper is like really like, this is challenging because it's not about like, okay, what I enjoy, what I want to hear. It's about what we need to hear. Love those who persecute you. Doing this out of grace and compassion. Not because you love what they do, but because you love their soul and you want to see them saved. You want to see their life changed by the gospel. You want to see Jesus to come into their life and change who they are so that they would become loving people. Now, why did Jesus tell them? It's like, love your enemies, bless those who, who persecute you, bless those who curse you. I believe part of the reason for this is that he wants us to understand that while we are still sinners, we were enemies of God. The, the love of God was demonstrated and shown in various forms to people over history, over, to the Jewish people, to people since Jesus came and since he did his work on the cross, since he was resurrected from the dead, the love of God has still been shown to people, and yet people still acted awful to each other. People were still sinful. They still did what they wanted. They still murdered. They still stole. They still did awful things. And yet, in spite of that, in spite of the love of God that's made known to us through the revelation of his word, in spite of the love of God that's known to us by the Holy Spirit, there's still people that reject it, and still people who live just completely apart from God and do the worst things possible. And he says, you know, if I can love people still, then so should you and love them in this way. He says, by doing this also, he says, you're, by doing this, you demonstrate that you are sons of your Father in heaven. So when you love, when love is probably not the response that most people would go for, like if people curse you and you bless them, if people are, are per, they persecute you and treat you poorly and you, and you love them. He says, you know, by doing so, you're, you're actually being like me. You're being like God. You're being a son and a daughter of God. And you're showing what family you belong to. You're showing what tribe you belong to. When you don't act like the world, they say there's something different about you. Either you're a weirdo or you're loving, you know God or you're different somehow or you're religious. Something kind of makes them sit up and go, that's weird. Now, please understand that sometimes people will press in to being worse to you when you're like that. 
I'm just going to tell you, like, there, you think, well, okay, if I'm more loving, people will be more loving to me? No. There are people like, I'm going to see how far this goes and try and push you to the breaking point because they want to see it. Ha ha, see, I knew you had your limit. You weren't really a Christian. So just understand that that's going to happen. But love because Christ loved us first when we were unlovely and because it shows what family we belong to and who we belong to when we do. How do we learn to love like Jesus? Well, turn to 1 Thessalonians 3, 11, and 12. You still with me? Yeah. You guys are surprisingly awake this morning, even though you're, after worship, you were ready to sit down. You're like, I've just had enough. You guys sit. So awesome that you're, you're still attentive. So 1 Thessalonians 3, 11, and 12. And Paul writes this to them, and he says, simply, now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way to you, and, that, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love to one another, just as we to, do to you. So God's able to make love for others increase and abound in you, towards each other. He's able to do it. And he's able to help us duplicate that love that have been demonstrated by people who love us. So if you are here today and you've experienced God's love either through me or through a mentor or through a Bible study leader or, or through a men's or women's, women's ministry leader and, or just a Christian that, that shared the gospel with you and they showed you love, that love that you've received, that love that was demonstrated and poured out for you, he says, I want you to duplicate what we showed you. And sometimes it's as simple as that. Whenever you're kind of like thinking to yourself, I don't know how to love people, remember how love was shown to you. Remember the late night texts and phone calls when you were a new Christian asking the pastor or asking that person that was discipling you, what should I do? And you took time to answer it. Remember the times where your heart was broken and uh, that person came over to comfort you or took you out to coffee or took you out to lunch. Remember the times that that person prayed you through things when you felt like you were going to give up and you, you were going to quit on God in the church. And when you saw those things demonstrated to you, then that's what you need to duplicate in your life. Paul says, you know, just as we did this to you, just as we do to you and showed you love, then you show love to each other. So God's able to impart it to you and give it to you for people. And maybe you've encountered that. You ever had somebody that's just like, I don't, everybody else is like, I hate that person. That person's obnoxious. But somehow in your workplace, somehow, some way, God's given you a love for them. And people are like, well, why do you put up with that person? Why do you care? He said, I don't know, I, I just know that God loves them. When there's people that are like hurting and, and neglected by the rest of the world, whether it's the homeless or the drug, uh, people that are into the drug culture, or whatever the case might be, or kids that are in foster care, and you're like, well, why do you, why do you care? Like, I don't know, God's put something in me that I can't explain. And that's a love that comes from God that can only come from you. It doesn't come from yourself. So it's given to you, and it's modeled for you, and must be duplicated in you. We must ask God to give us a love for non-Christians, the unsaved, a love for our neighbors, the people around us, that even though we might not be close to them, we kind of know them. They put their bin, our trash bins out for us, and maybe they'll shovel your walkway, but you don't really have conversations. And maybe you live in like really rural places where your next neighbor's like five miles away, you know, like my wife grew up and 
you know, uh, Shelburne and her next neighbor down the road was like two or three minutes down the road. So it's not like you're like seeing them all the time. So like that might be a little more challenging to you. But I'm talking about loving your neighbor, like the people that you just come in contact with on a daily basis, even though you don't have a deep connection with them. And a love for fellow Christians, your brothers and sisters in Christ, we're actually considered to be part of the same family through our connection in Christ. Now, let's go back to John 13, 35, and just wrap this up here, okay? It says, by this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now, love is the identifier for the Christian. It's like, how will the world know that you're a follower of Jesus? I find it interesting that Jesus didn't say, they'll know you're my disciples by your doctrine, although doctrine's important. He didn't say, you'll know you're my disciples by your stand on social issues. But social issues are important. They'll know you're my disciples by how you vote. No, he didn't say that, but that voting is important. Having a moral, taking a stand for what is moral and socially right, taking a stand on issues is important. But Jesus didn't say you'll be known by those things. Instead, he said, you know, to a world of unbelievers, to a world of non-Christians, how will they know that you follow me? He says, by your love for one another. Now, it's interesting that everything else that I had mentioned, that's what people associate with Christians today. But they don't associate with them love. In fact, that's the furthest thing that they associate them with these days. It's a challenge to us. It's stunning and sobering. It should make us think about how we respond to everything that comes our way. When everything, when it, whatever comes our way, we really need to sit down and think about, well, how am I going to respond to that? How will I, I, when I hear this, when I see this, and believe me, there's more than enough things to frustrate you out there today. I'm exceedingly frustrated with the world we live in. You don't look frustrated. I am frustrated, okay? I am but like me being nasty about it is not going to change anybody. Instead, can I be loving towards people? Can I be loving towards other Christians who differ from me doctrinally and denominationally? I've seen some stuff that like will just make your hair stand up. Like the way that Christians talk to other Christians, like, well, you don't have the truth. We're Reformed theology, and that's the queen of theology, and you've got it wrong. Or... You believe in the moving of the Spirit? Don't you know that's heresy? Or like, we're just, like, we can't even be nice to each other. We can't be like, you know what, you go there and you worship there, and I, that's, that's good that you worship there, but no, you've got it wrong. And we're the only ones that have it right. I thank God that that's not the kind of church I run. I don't want that church. It's okay to clap. You can. It's fine. But you know what I mean? It's like, I don't want the church. Like, well, we've got it figured out, and nobody else does it. No one else has the truth. Like, how foolish is that? The church has been around, Christianity's been around for 2,000 plus years. And we're the only ones that have it right? God, how, how arrogant can you be? How proud can you be to think that out of everybody that's been walking this planet, that's been following Christianity, you've got it right and nobody else does? Wow. Wow. That's all I can say to that. That's not love. That's not Christ at work. Jesus is probably going, oh my goodness, you know the, the emoji you have in your phone? Type in SMH in your phone and see what emoji comes up. It's this guy. They should have a Jesus one. He's kind of like, oh, just like seriously, like what are you doing? 
We got, Jesus, we got to narrow it down and see who the true chosen are. Yes, that's exactly what he came to do. You know, save the, the 50 or 80 people that's in your church and to let the whole else, let the rest of the world go to hell. That's what he came to do. Do you see the foolishness? Like, I, I, could, I just, ah! Acting like my daughter here sometimes when she gets frustrated with me. You know, it's like, there's sometimes just like, what are we doing? What are we doing when it comes to those sorts of things? It's stunning and sobering, and it should make us rethink the way we respond to these things. I think it's interesting that Jesus inserts this interesting conjunction into the sentence. He says, you'll know my, people will know that you are my disciples by your love for one another. He doesn't say that. It's actually consistent in most translations. If you love each other. Like that should like scream off the page to you. Two big letters, if Knowing that there's a possibility you probably won't. Knowing that it will take some work to do so. Knowing that it will be difficult for us to do. And knowing that we might not do it at all. It's a conditional identifier. People will only know the connection we have with Christ by the way that we show love to one another as fellow believers. Something that Christians have trouble doing. Sometimes we can say the most unkind things to one another. And believe me, it's not a message about being kind and being nice and say, saying flowery things. There are sometimes in love you need to say hard things too. But it's the way you say things that makes the difference whether they'll receive it or not. It's our love that identifies us as followers of Jesus. It's the love that is a connecting force that lets people know that we belong to Jesus, that we've been with Jesus, that we represent Jesus, when we don't do those things, we've, there's a d- disconnect there that takes place. When we forget to be loving towards each other, we sabotage the connection that people make with Jesus. See, people are supposed to see us, see our love, see Jesus. If they see us, see no love, disconnection with Jesus. Or, worse, a connection with Jesus that Jesus never intended. Do you understand what I'm saying? A connection with Jesus that he never intended. He never intended for people to assume that to be a Christian means to be hateful, to be bigoted, to be foul-mouthed, to be, uh, you know, uh, uncaring, any of those things. But yet that's what people will associate with Jesus when we fail to be loving to one another. We should ask ourselves a question. Does my reaction in this situation demonstrate love? Here's a great question. You know, when it comes to things that you encounter and decisions you have to make. Sometimes this works really, well, all the time, this works really well. And we try and do it in our board meetings and our discussions. And when there's a difficult situation that requires us to to confront something, we always ask this question, what would love do? What does love require? Because there's the way that you think you should handle it and then there's the way that you handle it in love. Sometimes we assume, assume for a moment that, you know, being loving means I don't confront. And if you've ever done that in parenting, you know it's a disaster. Like for you to let that go and not, you know, address it because like, well, I love them, so I, I don't want to upset them. There are times where you're going to be in love with somebody and you're going to be upset. Sometimes they're going to be upset with you. Sometimes you're going to be upset with them. And you've got to talk through it and work through it. So we have to find ways to be able to bring things up in love. It's 
Never in the corporate business side of way where we go, well, we need to just tell the person, this is, like, this is the way it is. They need to do this. But instead, we have to be like, okay, how do we approach this in a way that we help them and we don't lose our brother and sister in Christ? We help them and we, they don't lose their faith or they don't leave the church or whatever. We're trying to work it so that we're uh, doing it in a way that's loving. So what does love require? What does love demand? Do people understand that? Do they see that? As I wrap this up this morning, um, you know, it's important to be genuine. And uh, if you've ever had jewelry, you know that there's real jewelry and there's fake jewelry, right? And there's a difference between the two. Funny thing about fake jewelry is that it shines really bright, but it's not real, okay? So you can tell the difference between the two. So if you have... Uh, fake gold, gold plated um, or brass or something else, you know that it, it shines a lot brighter than it probably it should. You're like, oh, that looks really, that looks like gold. It's not. Because gold has a little bit of a, more of a dull, warm color to it than things that are super shiny. We're kind of captivated by the shiny. The shiny is surface. Shiny is either gold plating or some kind of other metal. Uh, cubic zirconia, for example, really looks like a diamond. But it's not a diamond. You can test it because one is hard, the other isn't. You can't break a diamond, whereas you could break a cubic zirconia. You know what I mean? Uh, real jewelry has a mark on it that says it's authentic and it's real. 14 karat gold or for silver, 529 or silver or whatever or sterling, whatever it says. Some of the girls are like, I better check this right now just to be sure. What? It doesn't have that on there. So you can tell what's real versus what's fake. You can't tell initially unless you have a trained eye. But you can tell later, like if you're wearing fake gold and it turns your finger green, then you know it's not the real thing. It hasn't lasted the test of time. It hasn't gone beneath just what's on the surface. It's not, like if you cut it in half, I don't recommend this, by the way. Some people would be like, how do you test if something's real? Well, cut it in half. Or apply acid to it. It's like, no, there's other ways you can check that without having to ruin it. So you can check, and the way you check is like, over time, does it change color? Over time, does it wear away? Over time, is it still authentic? Listen, we as Christians, we are, to, we are given the mark of the master on us as to determine what's really on the inside. We have uh, that mark that determines that we are Christians. We belong to the Lord. He's marked us with the seal of his salvation. And that should be visible and present to everyone around us so that when they see us, they're like, I know what's inside that person. When they say Christian, when they say they go to Living Hope Church, whatever the case might be, that they know that they're dealing with a genuine, authentic person that truly loves like Jesus loves. That over time, things don't wear off or change color or fall apart because what's inside is genuine. I believe God's calling us to be genuine. He's calling us to be authentic. He's calling us to be real. Something that is warm, that bears the mark of the Savior, and that endures the test of time. That's what he wants from us. 
that we would be called Christians by our love, identified by love, first and foremost. That when you think of the one another statements, you think of people that are living that out and following that. This morning, as we think about these thoughts, as we think about these things that Jesus said, maybe we can just take a moment and close our eyes as we prepare our hearts to pray today. And just asking ourselves the question, what do I love? Why do I love? And am I showing love like Jesus had? Is my love authentic? Is it deep or is it surface? Do we shine brightly on the outside but on the inside it's all fake? And it's a genuine question to ask ourselves because honestly a person to love like Jesus loves would have to be able to set aside themselves in order to love in that way. So maybe the Lord's challenging you today to look inside and say, okay, where is your love? What's your love like? Is it real? Is it authentic? Does it represent me well? And if you're not in that place, can I challenge you today to relook at the way you act, the way you talk to people, the way you live, so that other people would see the love that's within you that you've received from Christ. He set the bar high. Love others like I've loved you. And we can only do that by his help and by the help of the Holy Spirit. So let's pray towards that end. So Heavenly Father, we ask for that today. We ask, Lord, that you would give us a love so that we can love others like you do. Help us to remember the ways that we've experienced your love the ways that you've shown us love and that we might love others that way. Help us to love extravagantly, completely and fully and sacrificially. I pray, God, that you would help each person here to have that genuine love in their heart, that they would look at the things that come their way, the things that people say to them and respond and react like you would. Lord, I pray that you would give us that supernatural love for not only the lost, Lord God, ones that don't know you, sinners and people that we consider to be bad. Lord, help us to love the people that irritate us, that get on our nerves and to show them love. Lord, help us to love our fellow believers, our our brothers and sisters in Christ that sit in the same room with us. Lord, help us to be an adequate representation of your love, Lord, a good reflection of who you are. And Lord, only you can do that in us. So Lord, forgive us for the times that we haven't been loving, the times we haven't been kind and gracious. And today I pray, Lord God, fill us with your love once more. Remind us of your love and help us to model your love to one another. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. We invite you to join us Sunday mornings to worship with us. We are located at 267 College Highway in Southwick, Massachusetts. For more information about Living Hope Church, visit us online at www.livinghopechurchag.org.